So tonight, it's, it's been a while for me since I've been back up here, and, and God's been taking me and my wife through just this ringer of exposing himself and his heart to us. And so tonight I want to talk about the intimacy of God. And we've talked a little bit roughly on it before. And tonight I want to take us into a place where we, we examine God's intentions and purpose. I'm going to relate some things to marriage and relationships. Last week we had our, our dating and relationship uh, panel that was like a shotgun in a washing machine, which was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, but tonight, like, I really believe that there's an intention for God to take our group to the next level. And I believe that the next level is not necessarily the next event or the next study or emphasis. I really believe it's the next level of encounter with him. And it's been a little bit frustrating on, uh, on, a, on an end for, for leadership to have such a desire and craving, but yet feeling like no matter what the program is, it's not going to be the answer for more intimacy corporately. And so a while ago we said we're going to, to stop conforming Epic Life to a program and we're just going to pursue the intimate encounters. And so tonight I want to dive in a little bit of detail for that and give some application for us. So uh, just pray with me. God, I just thank you for tonight. Lord, I thank you that you are an intimate God. Lord, that you are... God, passionately concerned that we would be known by you. Lord, I ask that tonight that you just would take over. God, that the words that would go forward would be straight from your heart, from your purposes. We give you the scripture and the text that we would examine tonight. And we just pray that you would strengthen us, that we take hold of it. Lord, that the word would take root in our soul, in our hearts, and that, Lord, you would transform us. And so we just commit that to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you happen to have a Bible, we're going to start in, a, in Acts, and we're going to bounce around a couple places. I think we have the scripture on the screen, too, so if you got that, no worries, I'll also read it. But I'm going to start in Acts, chapter 4, verse 8. Acts, chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. The preceding verses, the disciples had healed a man, a beggar. Peter says, he is the stone, speaking of Jesus, which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed, this is the rulers, the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Recognizing them as being with Jesus. Do you know how profound that is? That someone would recognize Peter and recognize that he had been with Jesus. Now imagine if, if maybe I came in here tonight with Camille, and let's say, um, I don't know, like this button was like all the way to the top, and maybe like I had my shirt on backwards, I had like maybe lipstick on my cheek, and I, I smelled like perfume, right? And maybe I'm like in here, I'm like spiking a football and super in a good mood or something. 
you know, wouldn't you like look at me and you're like, look at my wife and like, you know, you kind of like put two and two together. I think that, that, that's, that the intention here is that, that we would be known by our encounters with God that we had been with Jesus. That our lives would have evidence that we have had a transformational experience in which other people take notice. The rulers and the individuals here standing before Peter and John knew that they were uneducated, untrained. But yet they knew one thing for sure that these men had been with Jesus. I want that for us. I want us to know that we don't have to be huge biblical scholars. We don't need to go to seminary. We don't need to be in these high stature places of, of Christendom to have an influence where people recognize us as being with Jesus. And the great thing about Peter is I love Peter because he's totally the guy that cheesed out like the most. You know, like, so at one point Jesus is like, Peter, I call you rock and upon this rock I'm going to build my church. You know, like this is the, the king of the universe saying this. And then he's like, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. I mean, could you not even say more grand statements than that? And then like four verses later, Peter, you know, spouts off or something, and and then Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. You know, he had this habit of totally overreacting. When the the rulers came for Jesus, Peter, standing there, just like has a sword, who knows how he got it, and whips it out, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Like, just totally like, Peter, seriously? You know, like, you cut off the ear— he, he, he totally just has a hard time getting it. He tries really hard charging it. And the worst of all is that when the rulers came for Jesus, they took him away, and then someone says, hey, you're the guy that had been with Jesus too, aren't you? He denies him three times. Total epic fail. Peter had the opportunity to stand and bear witness to Jesus, and he says, I, I never knew him. He says, may I be damned and cursed if I'm lying. I don't know him. And so here, after Jesus has been resurrected, after uh, Jesus has been crucified, he stands before rulers, and these individuals look at this man and notice he's not trained, and he's uneducated, and say, this man has the power of the living God. And I would argue tonight that it's all about having that aroma, that experience with Jesus in our personal lives that give us the power to have that influence over our culture is that you want to live a life and people demand an explanation about why you are different. They want to know what makes you the way that you are. A.W. Tozer says, we can be in our day what the heroes of faith were in their day, meaning all the apostles, all the disciples. But remember, at the time, they didn't know that they were heroes. I would suggest that that the only way the disciples were able to do what they did is they had intimate encounters with Jesus on a daily basis. We should recognize from the text that having been recognized with Jesus is that we are figuratively, metaphorically, spiritually transformed by our encounters with God. I heard it say that that the, the claims of the Bible, the claims of Jesus, what has happened is so crazy that if it is true that we would be compelled to live our entire lives telling the world about it. And if it's false, that we'd spend our entire lives trying to disprove it. That's how grand and mighty the claims are. I would suggest that the, the things that we want to go for in life, they all start with us having that intimate encounter with Jesus. I want to ask you a question about where you're at currently in your walk. How sure are you about hearing God's voice in your life? 
How sure are you that God is speaking to you, that he's prodding you, that he's giving you direction? Internally, just think about it. On a scale of 1 to 10, how, where, where do you land on that? I think it's important to know that we study the Bible, we learn about Jesus, we go to church, we do these things, and, and we, we try to know about God. We try to know about him, and the only thing that's more important than knowing about God is him knowing you. I almost printed out like the Wikipedia uh, printout of woman. If you Google woman, you know, it pulls up Wikipedia. And it gives you like a whole like, you know, 10 or so pages. Now, if I was to gauge my marriage based on what I know about a woman, I would have a miserable relationship. It doesn't tell me anything about having a good marriage. It doesn't tell me anything about loving my wife. It gives me details and facts. And we need to understand that God calls us into an intimate relationship where we have to go beyond just knowing about him, that we have to know him on an intimate level. So I have uh, four suggestions for how uh, that we can determine our intimacy. Four suggestions in ways that we would examine and that allow that to influence and guide the way that we approach intimacy. The first thing is your imagery of God will determine your intimacy. Your imagery. So who do you picture in your mind when you think about Jesus? Many of us have different suggestions. Maybe we have, uh, let's say, the, the crotchety old grandfather, you know, that you, you, you call him when something is, is wrong and you need money, you need help. And so you call grandpa. And you're like, oh, grandpa, I've been meaning to call you. Man, I just haven't done it. And by the way, I need a new car, you know. Like, is God like the, the distant grandfather that, that's kind of crotchy that is just around for when you need something? Or maybe God for you in the imagery is a, a, a father that, that's kind of like looking out to like keep you in line. You know, he, he gives like a little crack on the back of the head. Like, come on, man, get your head in the game. What, what is your image of God? Maybe you have like a friend. It's like, hey, God's like my homie. You know, like Jesus is my homie. Those shirts like sh- sold millions of dollars. And um, maybe he's just like a friend. But I would suggest that all that stuff is, is you know, okay. I, I get that we have life experiences that help shape us for that. But I think that one thing that we need to suggest is that God as a lover, God as an intimate pursuer of us, is an area that we don't really cultivate much. We kind of don't like to feel like, I don't want to be romantic with God. That's not something that we just generally gravitate towards. But we need to be okay that the Bible talks about us as the bride of Christ. We need to be okay that, that Jesus is coming back for us. We, cumulatively Christians, the church, we are his prize. The end times are the imagery of a wedding ceremony. You and I are what Jesus gets. Kind of crazy. You think that maybe if you're to be married to somebody at some point in time, you'd want to get to know them a little bit. But I think what this does is it, it allows us to stop identifying a relationship with God as simply cohabitating or coexisting. One of my favorite passages is John seventeen three. It says, this is eternal life, that you would know the true God. And that know is the same know in Genesis chapter 1 that talks about Adam knew Eve. And it's referred to as intercourse. That we would know God on that intimate level. This is eternal life, that you would know God as two lovers know each other. We need to be okay with that 
phraseology, that terminology, because that's not to be weird. That's to say that God wants to break through the, 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 the father figure. He wants to break through the friend. He wants to break through all that and give you another angle and says, I want sweet communion with you. I want to know you deeper than anybody else. I'm not here to grant wishes. I'm not here to give you good parking spaces. I'm not here to give you health. I'm here to give you abundant life. I'm here to let you know me and to have me know you. We need to consider our imagery of God. Our imagery of who God is will define our intimacy with him. You don't picture yourself having intimacy on those other levels. Like we, we need to consider that, that Jesus desires that. The second thing is your frequency will determine your intimacy. Your frequency will determine your intimacy. Using my, my wife as another example, how good do you think my marriage would be if I just talked to her every Sunday at like 11 o'clock? Probably wouldn't be very good. Probably spend a lot of nights on the couch, you know? Like, you can't have a healthy relationship with someone you only connect with once a week. I really believe you're going to have the best or the crappiest relationship with God depending on what you decide to put into it. The frequency in which you come and communicate with God really, really matters. Again, it's not about what you know about God. It's about does he know you? When we consider the frequency, what is our day like? How do we communicate with God? Is it often or is it limited to a Thursday and a Sunday? Or what? It's not to be religious and say that you have to have this regimen, but I'm telling you, you simply cannot have a healthy relationship with another human being and only talk once a week, once a month, on Easter, on Christmas, whenever it is. Now, my wife, she went to Sumatra for about three weeks in January. And uh, I had like this, you know, 24 uh, list items of awesomeness. It was like a hybrid of doing really stupid things that I'd get in trouble for if she was here and things that give me adrenaline and maybe threaten my life. You know, it was a whole mix of things. And so she was gone for like, it felt like four years. And so she was gone and, and a friend had noticed that I'm like totally overcompensating to not think about missing my wife. And he's like, did you ever consider that maybe God would want to do something in you during this time? No. That sounds really righteous, doesn't it? You know? And what I realized is that the intimacy that God desires for me when I miss my wife, when she's absent, is I should be developing an intimacy with God that when I'm not in the Word— when I'm not praying, when I'm not connecting with him, that I miss that. Because I'll tell you that when uh, a husband and wife are separated for a long time, you begin to miss each other and crave each other on an intimate level. It's not merely about sex. It's not about, you know, gross stuff. It's, it's about you miss the two lives that are meant to be one, and we'll see that God intends us to be one with him. There's a frequency in which we engage with God that cultivates that intimacy. And if we don't go without it, man, if you've, well, maybe I'm a little more on the inside of this than some others, but you know some, like, relationships that aren't intimate at all? And, like, it's miserable. The absence of intimacy drives people loony. They become angry. (laughs) The frequency in which those intimate encounters are important. I actually have accountability relationships, guys who connect with me. And you know what all they want to know is? It's not to be about, uh, to be inappropriate, but they want to know, how is your intimacy in your marriage? It's like, I'm not ready for that question. And they, they ask because they know the presence of a marital intimacy breathes health. 
And the opposite is true. The absence of it is alarm bells are going off. If you are not being able to have intimacy with your wife, then there's something wrong in your relationship. And so I'll have guys that are just, they're purely focused on, man, I want to know how well your marriage is. If your marriage is not solid, if you do not have intimacy, if you don't have these things, then everything else you're doing, the business stuff, the ministry stuff, it just, it's, it doesn't matter. It's all going to crumble. And so we have people that, that gauge with me, that ask me, how am I doing in terms of being relatable and close with my wife? I think the same, again, is with Jesus, that when we don't engage in intimacy with Jesus, that we, we turn sour. We start to get cranky. I know that if I go uh, a while without renewing myself in the word, and I have, like, employees, and, like, I can turn into, like, a not very fun person. I'll get, like, kind of agitated. I'll, like, be stressed out. Like, when I go into the word and I pray and I, and I connect with God, he gives me peace to get through my day. The word anointing means to be, like, smeared. And you think of, like, that you, you get to be, like, dunked in, in something. You know, like, you are covered and you go through your day, and that slowly is like wearing off. And that's the only way I can like tangibly describe it is that when we come and we have intimacy with God is that we get dunked in his presence, and we have the ability to walk through our day and not totally jack it up as much. You know, still you still make mistakes. But I look to God and say, God, this is my time where I reset, I calm my heart, I give myself to you, and let me to walk in the fullness So I ask about your frequency. Do you feel that there is a regular frequency in in which you are connecting with God? And this is not to be about uh, specifics about how many times did you connect with God, you know, by reading your Bible. We can connect with God on all sorts of different levels. One of the best ways I could connect with God was out surfing. And it was just one of the places I'd go out there and I just would pray. And I would, like, in between waves or sets, be like, God, give me a great wave. No, I'd, you know, give him, like, serious stuff, too. But one of the ways is I can have solitude and peace. Sometimes even the presence of peace and silence is some of the best times in which we can connect with God. The third is your proximity will determine your intimacy. Your proximity will determine your intimacy. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Now I've got to confess, this is probably the single verse in the Bible, that probably most teachers would shy away from. This is a heavy, heavy, heavy verse. And people just like, oh, we'll, we'll, you know, skip that passage for now. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, On that day... Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Isn't that heavy? That Jesus is sitting here talking to people and they're like, Jesus, we, we like cast out demons. We, we provided miracles. Man, we had a huge gathering. We had the service. Hundreds of people got saved. You know, aren't you stoked? Look look what we did. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Now, how does that sit? It doesn't feel like it's, it's Jesus, does it? It's easy to take this verse and let that totally torment you. 
But I'm going to tell you what this verse means. Because an informed Christian is going to look at this, an informed Christian of the Word of God is going to look and to know that God has a plan for the people that are called by His name. They know that Jesus says that once they're my hand, no one will ever be able to snatch them out. People look at this verse and say, oh, well, you know, just because you're saved doesn't mean you're really saved. What if I do something wrong? I'm going to be cast out. The person who knows the word of God knows that Jesus says, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He's crossed over from death to life and will not be condemned. Anybody who knows this word knows that 1 John 1.12 says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. The informed Christian knows that when they read Jesus' words, his plan is that he and you are one. You are the vine. He is the branch. You know that you can never be taken from him. So now we read this verse and we're seeing like, man, Jesus is saying even Christians aren't saved. What do we do? What do we do, right? Here's the thing. Look at the words that he says. The individual is saying, we, we did all these things. And Jesus says, I never knew you. And the point is, in the proximity for intimacy, a corporate setting is not enough for God. Capital has 4,000 in attendance. And this is saying that just because you attended a huge conference, a, a huge church, and maybe God showed up there corporately, does not say that you have a personal relationship with God. Jesus says that whoever, not whatever, not which church, not which nation, says whoever, meaning you individually, you, 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 each of us have a, a, a mandate that we cultivate an individual relationship with God. The proximity to you and God has to transcend a corporate environment like this. It's not going to be enough that we have an awesome worship band. God shows up. Someone gets a word. Someone gets healed. All those things. When you show up and you say, God, I I attended many events where you showed up. And he's like, I don't know you. Who are you? That's not to say that Christians are condemned. That just calls you into a, a closer proximity to him. He wants individuality. He doesn't want corporate uh, uh, large nations and say, well, God surely loves America, so all Americans are going to be saved. It doesn't matter. He doesn't care what race, what country, what group, what church. He cares that you have an individual relationship with him. Is that making sense? I think that we need to be careful that group settings, group encounters with God are not the substitutes for our personal encounters. We cannot just merely uh, rely on these group settings to to feed us for how God wants us. I once dated a a girl in college before my wife, and um, I don't know why that detail is important, but (laughs) one of many, uh, no, (laughs) one of two, Um, but so we're (laughs) not funny. so we dated this girl, and so the, the concern, in, in, in the spirit of having a pure and right relationship, she suggested, let's never hang out one-on-one. Let's never hang out one-on-one. Always, let's do groups. Always, you know, four or more. Let's only do that. And, all right, sure, why not, you know. And we try to date a little bit. And it, 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 it was dead faster than it started. Because there's no way that you can cultivate an individual intimacy with somebody, not on a sexual level, not on a physical level, but on a, on a personal human level. 
You cannot cultivate what's required to gauge the health of that relationship, to gauge if that's a woman that would be suitable for my calling with God in that environment. It just isn't going to work. There needs to be some level of individual connectedness in which we connect. And so the relationship didn't go anywhere fast. It was like, this is, sorry, man. When we both knew it. And it was fine. It was great. But the, the point is, is that if you just rely on corporate settings like this and you expect that that is going to be the place where God is going to totally rattle you, expect that's it, I believe God is calling you to step up and raise the bar with your own relationship with him. Whatever that is. <laughs> I think it's, it's vitally important to know that we can be intimate together corporately, but it'll never be as intimate as you and God by yourself. You'll always be more vulnerable, more intimate, more real, more transparent when you are one-on-one with God. My mornings, I wake up and I I get by myself. I have my little table. I get my coffee. I I get there and I just, I put my head down. And sometimes I pray. Sometimes just silent. Sometimes I read. But the point is, is that it's, I have to have an individual time that prepares me. You ever notice like how honeymoon suites have, um, you know, like four bedrooms, a couple bunk beds? No. Like a honeymoon suite does not have any more than one bed and one bedroom. It better not or else you're not in a honeymoon suite. The honeymoon is not supposed to be a corporate gathering. Imagine if you took your bride and you go up and, and you're in the honeymoon suite, you, know, you, you grab her, you take her across the threshold, you're like, yeah, and there's grandma, and she's like, you know, sipping some wine or something, like, welcome! You know, like, how intimate are you going to be in that setting? Probably not very. You're going to be like, get the heck out of here. It doesn't make sense at all. Why? Because you're not going to be intimate in that context. You're always going to be the most intimate when it's you and God by yourself. And then you bring that to environments here and let that season into the environment that you're in. Let your individual worship time, your individual connectivity with God come and season a corporate environment here. If you're looking for this to be the whole source, I think you're going to find that your relationship will only go so so deep. Because God will take anybody anywhere that wants to go and wants to pursue those depths. And some people can totally connect in these environments, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm saying that it has to be more than a corporate setting. Fourth and finally, is your dysfunctionality will determine your intimacy. Your dysfunctionality. You're like, what? My dysfunctionality? Your dysfunctionality will determine your intimacy. I think that we realize that our journey of life is peppered with different things, uh, experiences, ways in which we begin to relate, ways in which we perceive the world, and those things oftentimes can have a negative influence on our relationship with God. The ways in maybe which we've had a relationship that has caused severe harm to us, we will have that be something that affects our relationship with God. Our dysfunction, the ways in which make us unique relationally, sometimes can be a hindrance block to really come into that intimate place. My parents are like crazy generous, like unbelievable. I, um, I grew up just with them, like they just shower you with gifts. If anybody's ever in like the Portland area, 
Like, let me know. I'll give you, like, my family's phone number and details. And they'll, like, call you. and like, we're so excited to see you. What size slipper and bathrobe do you wear? What's your favorite food? And, like, anytime we go up to Portland, like, they will, like, lay out the spread of, like, all of our favorite things. And they'll just lavish, like, these crazy gifts. Well, if you're not used to, if you're not used to my family, if you did not grow up that way, to receive a gift is sometimes not a good thing. Anybody here, like, have a hard time receiving gifts at all? No? Yeah? Few. I think a lot of people do. Because you feel compelled that I need to give something back. And so, coming in a relationship with my family, sometimes there's people that have received great things, and there's, like, the pressure, like, I need to do something back. I can't receive without doing something back. There's a great clip in the office. We'll, we'll show it here in just a second. But the larger episode is, is awesome. There's a guy who wants to, uh, Dwight, he wants to completely subdue the office and get everyone to owe him a favor. And so he does this, like, nice thing for everybody. But there's one guy in there that he cannot accept a gift without doing something back. He's like, I got to respond. And so the episode has, like, them going back and forth. Like, who can, like, give the gift back? And so they never end. So there's a little clip here. Maybe we can show it real quick from the episode. Oh. Feel it against your cheek. I will. You give me a gift, bam. Thank you, note. You invite me somewhere, pow, RSVP. You do me a favor, wham, favor returned. Do not test my politeness. Do you feel that way? Do you feel that the gifts that you get, like, man, I gotta do something back? I kind of do that, like, if someone does something nice for me, like, I was like, okay, it's on, like, let's do something more. You know, Dave and I, we exchange weapons, you know, when I go on a trip. And he, he totally, like, trumped me because he invented, like, an air cannon for me back. And so I got to figure out something to do for him. But sometimes our relational dysfunctions, if, if we cannot receive gifts and totally be like, sweet, that's awesome, thank you, I appreciate that, and not feel compelled to give back, the unshakable forgiveness and generosity of God will not be acceptable to you. You will not be able to relate how on earth can God freely give me all these things and I don't need to do anything back. Do you ever feel like you, because God's given you all this, that you need to like do these awesome things? Like, God, I got to build like five churches in your name, you know? Like, I, I believe that how we perceive and do relationship is going to perceive how we have God. And just for example, if you have an issue judging others, I would argue that you probably struggle with God judging you. If you have unforgiveness in your, in your heart, if you, if you got someone that's just on your mud list, I would probably suggest that maybe in your life, maybe you feel that you're on God's mud list. And maybe he's looking to do something. If, uh, if you have a record of wrongs, if you have a great memory of everybody who ever owed you a nickel or ever cut you off— Maybe you suggest, or maybe I suggest that you have a fear that God is keeping record of your wrongs. Is that making sense? Where our relational dysfunctionalities in between each other oftentimes will frame the way in which we have relationship with God because we feel he's doing the same thing to us. I think we, we need to examine how are we doing life and living relationship with others. Does someone have a reason to fear your love? Have you, like, blown it ever and just like you made a mockery of what it is to love people as Christ commands? Do you have a reason to fear that God loves you because you failed at loving others?
Let me give you an example. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. It's right before Revelation. 1 John chapter 4, this is verse 11. 11 to 20. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Everyone say perfected. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Again, God's not going to cast us out. Verse 16. And if we have come to know, there's that know, and have believed the love which God has for us, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, what does this mean? Do you know, like, the the two strongest words in there, that God's love is perfected in us. What on earth does that mean? That God's love is perfected in us. It means that all of us come with a tainted version of love that needs to be corrected. I believe if we, we fear God's love for us, it's probably reason that other people fear our love. Are, 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 you, are you with me? That when we love others, we love others as Christ commands us, it says that God's love is perfected in us. Why? It's not because someone else got blessed by our love. When we love others as Christ loves us, it doesn't do the other person that much good. It does us the best because we begin to correct the crooked frame of which God's love is for us. Are you with me? When we love others, God's love is perfecting us, meaning that all the dysfunctionality we have with God's love over us starts to get clear. That our, our, our twisted ideas of love, when we love as Christ did, that God brings clarity to that. Our dysfunction and our ability to clear out the dysfunction of how we love others is going to give us the right relationship to receive love. Because sometimes to be loved doesn't feel all that good. And until we walk into a relationship with one another in which we love as God is saying, and we understand that we have a failed idea and picture of love, and as we, we, as we champion it forward as God intends, his idea of us becomes clearer. Do you have a reason to fear God's love? Can I ask you to examine how you love others? Can I suggest that maybe every dysfunction that you have with God's love, God's uh, total forgiveness for you, that he keeps no record of wrong, you can list anything, any concerns that you have about God, can I suggest that maybe that you think about, am I practicing this in some other relationship with others around me? 
Can I suggest that as we look to that, that we examine our hearts and say that the more I do relationships right with people and demonstrate self-sacrifice, that I understand that God sacrificed himself for me. Not because it benefits them, although that does happen, but it, it clarifies the picture for me. I want to end with this and have the band come up. I think we underestimate how much God really wants to hear us. I think we underestimate how valuable he puts that time in the mornings, in the nights, whenever with us. If I were in a stadium, I, I with 99.9% certainty, can almost guarantee that if Camille called my name, that I would hear, and I could know exactly where it came from. I think we look at the relational intimacy and we see that, that God has designed us to have a familiar voice with him. That our voice would be sweet to him, that it would be familiar to him because intimacy is not about competency. It's not about how well you can pray. It's not about how good of a Christian you are. Intimacy is not about ability like, I can abstain from this or I can do this on my own. It's not about perfection. It's not about doing all the right things right. Intimacy is purely about familiarity. That your voice should be familiar to God. And I just, I encourage you guys, if you take nothing else from this, to, to know that God desperately wants to hear the sound of your voice. And whatever means or way that needs to happen, however that comes, night or by day or by morning, that God would hear your voice and that you would give him that time. Let's stand and pray. God, I just ask you that tonight you would give us a clear picture of who you are for us. God, we just commit to you that Our ways and means of love are false. They need correcting. They need help. They need to be perfected by you. Lord, we just pray that you would give us a desire for intimacy. God, because we know that intimacy breeds desire for more intimacy. Lord, we also know that an intimate encounter will also make us bolder and go further. So, Lord, we pray for intimate encounters, not only corporately, Lord, but individually. God, we know as we commit to seek you, Lord, that commitment brings connection. God, we want connection with you, so we ask that we, Lord, would not be okay with just mediocre Christianity. We'd not be okay with just attending, but God, that we truly would press in and seek, and God, that we would have a familiar voice in your ear. Lord, you're not the angry father. You're not the distant relative. God, you're not the genie. God, you are an intimate friend. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would give us a new revelation, a fresh word, a fresh ability to hear and understand, God, your purposes and understanding for us. God, we pray that we would love passionately in this room. God, we pray that we would love with such uh, an idea God, of how close you are when we love others because it is perfected in us. God, help us to have a new focus for that.
And we just draw near to you now, Lord. I just pray as worship comes now that, Lord, we would truly connect with you. And you would take it out of these four walls and you would push us into everyday experiences with you. And we thank you for that. And commit this time.